The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. Uh, That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. in Paris on the brink of a presidential election. Uh, Midnight in Kiev and Moscow, now in the same time zone, if not yet the same country. Half past one in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 2.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 5 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne and a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree for our listeners across the Pacific, including in the Solomon Islands, where maybe they've already got the Chinese troops there for the Kippers and Kedgeree. Uh, This day, 150 years ago, April 22nd, uh, 1872, Princess Margaret of Prussia was born. Uh, She was the younger sister of Kaiser Bill and would have been Queen of Finland had her husband not declined the offer of the throne. But they did make some crown jewels, even though nobody ever wore them. And I saw the copies thereof in Kemi, a town in southern Lapland, way up at the top of the Bay of Bothnia. And at the time I uh, went, the town was full of fake Syrian refugees. Um... It's very weird to take a look at the crown made for Princess Margaret of Prussia and then walk out the door and be confronted by men in the shalwar kameez. Garb from Arabia and the Indian subcontinent, but now a common sight in Lapland, as far as you can go in Europe without hitting Santa's grotto. Uh, Okay, enough of that big picture tiny vignette stuff. Let's get to your questions. Alyssa Angel says, uh, the French election is on Sunday. What do we know about Le Pen's chances? Um, I hope she wins and that she throws a wrench in the works of the globalist agenda. France first. France for French. But nice for tourists like me who promise to spend money there and then come home. Aux armes, citoyens. Listen to La Marseillaise sung by Marie Mathieu. It'll stir you up and it'll remind you of a better time. Marchon, marchon. It's always a better time with Marie Mathieu. I just, I love, uh, although, you know, to be honest, I like La Marseillaise. I think it's a brilliant national anthem. But uh, when it comes to uh, Mireille, I'd rather hear, what's that? There's a song of hers. It's just like a little itsy bitsy pop song. Of no, what's it called again? Uh, on a tous rendez-vous un jour avec ses chants. 
I've no idea what the title of that song is, but I'm pretty sure the first line is On a tous rendez-vous un jour avec sa chance. Um, sa chance, if you're speaking it, sa chance, if you're singing it. What am I on about? Mireille Mathieu. Yeah, I love Mireille Mathieu. What do we know about Marine Le Pen's chances? Well, uh, the polls narrowed right up until uh, the uh, first round of the voting. And it looked as if 51-49, they were within the margin of error. And then it's widened. It widened then. The European Union, as they usually do, did a number on her. A little too obvious, a little too obvious. You're not really being subtle enough. Uh, and so after the European Union did a, a number on her, they then narrowed again. But they're still, I think, about 14 points apart. So it looks as if, unless the polls are very badly off, that she is likely to lose, but it's likely to be closer than it was last time. And as I always say, I'm all about the urgency. Because every time you lose a five-year election cycle, you uh, you make the possibility of actual course correction as opposed to total societal collapse even more remote. So I have a huge problems with various bits of her, you know, left-wing... Uh, fiscal stuff, but uh, I would. I, I, she's culturally conservative, and she's better than Macron, who's just like this globalist cipher. Uh, he's pretty confident. He's been posing with his chest hair, uh, which is amazing. It's that really thick uh, broad loom. He's got some carpet tile stuff down his shirt. Um, but I, I would like to think that the chest hair. Uh, the it was a little bit too much of an obvious gambit and that Marine will win. We'll be talking about this on Monday's Mark Stein show on the telly. Uh, but right now, the last polls suggest that it's going to be way closer than 2017, but that uh, she may still be coming up short. Chris from Michigan writes, your straightforward presentation of the UK data data on the hazards of getting a third mRNA shot was illuminating and frightening. It should be noted that other jurisdictions are desperately trying to push third, fourth and even fifth shots while fiddling with statistics to make it all seem so reasonable. I think the Israeli thing, where it's got the, the highest percentage of people with the fourth shots on the planet and they've got they've basically got covid hanging off everything. There isn't there isn't any part of Israel that hasn't got that hasn't got the COVID. The Omicron are building their own settlements on the West Bank. Everybody's got the COVID in Israel. Um, on top of that, and this is interesting, on top of that, life expectancy is now dropping in the US. That's true. We have uh, interesting figures on excess mortality among the young and middle-aged. With the lockdowns, regional wars, experimental gene therapies, one might almost wonder if there is an effort going on to bump off a few more of us old-timers. 
Could it be that the Davos crowd is starting to take your demographic prophecies seriously, but instead of attacking it at the young end, trimming things at the old end, kind of like Logan's Run, but for 60-year-olds? Actually, it's exactly like, it's not like Logan's Run, bugger Logan's Run. I'm getting a bit tired of people citing the same old three or four movies. Uh, I far prefer, and I'm a big Jenny Agata fan. I love Jenny Agata. I, I, uh, I once had uh, the pleasure of working with her dad, Derek Agata, who used to work for um, whatever the uh, British Forces uh, entertainment thing was called in those days. Anyway, what am I talking about? Jenny Agata, Mireille Mathieu. <laughs> I'm lost in, I'm lost in reverie. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah. It's it's the fixed period. We're doing it. We're serializing it every bloody night this week. Uh, you know, there's not there's not a lot that's new under the sun. You can apply new technology to old ideas, and this idea that the world is overpopulated and that the old people are hanging people. I mean, basically, what's going on in the fixed period, where they take them all off to their so-called depositions? They're taken off to Necropolis to spend a last year in great comfort before they die is uh, exact. They're, they're withdrawn from the world and put in a special place where they can all die together, which, of course, is exactly what was done to people during the COVID era. So, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing new about this. We have, it, we have people making... Uh, I think we're a very cold society. It's a very funny thing, you know, but it's it's not so it's it's not so unpredictable that it would be like this. That the more you actually talk about your virtue, that the more you signal your virtue, the more you advertise your virtue, uh, the more you are, as uh, John O'Sullivan said the other day on my show about Joe Biden, the more you are a mean son of a bitch. And I think we're a very cold-hearted society. Uh, We don't really... We have this cult where people just believe that if you follow the science, must follow the science, which doesn't, which actually means following government bureaucrats who have a monopoly on science, and actually practicing scientists are out in the cold, and if they try to disagree with what the government bureaucracy says, they lose their jobs. Not to mention doctors, uh, GPs, general practitioners, people who see actual patients all day, every day, and happen to disagree with the government science, get struck off. And people die and even if you know them, even if you're their friend, I mean, what I find interesting about the BBC, for example, is the BBC presenter in Manchester, died uh, age 44. The coroner ruled that she died from an adverse reaction to the vaccine. They don't care. They were her friends. They went into work. They sat around the office together all day long. But it doesn't make any difference uh, because when it comes to follow the science, must follow the science, and doing what the bureaucrats tell you or disagreeing with what the bureaucrats tell you, um, they, they'd rather follow the science, even though the science killed their friend. Same thing with some 
presenter on BBC, I think it's BBC Radio Kent. Might get her on the show and uh, and talk to her about this. But it, the the other thing that's all, <laughs> I was amazed that uh, after I said what I said on uh, yesterday on GB News, I was just sort of glancing at Twitter because there was this explosion of rage from people. Um, but I saw one person, oh, well, obviously the unvaccinated have a lower rate of, you know, they, they, they have a low, lower rate of catching COVID uh, than the triple vaccinated because they've uh, got the, na- they've most likely already had COVID and have got the natural immunity. Oh, yes, of course. That's what makes me an idiot. You're saying then that uh, pumping people full of these shots every couple of months impedes the acquiring of the much stronger natural immunity? Is that what you're saying? Oh, who knew? Who knew? Yes, indeed. I think there's a lady in Spain. I think this came up. <laughs> now, that's a great song. Ray Mathieu, Jenny Agatha. Lady in Spain, I adore you. Have you ever seen the episode where Jeeves and Worcester uh, with uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, where, uh, <laughs> well, you probably haven't because you can't show it now if you didn't see it then. Hugh Laurie winds up uh, having to hide from Sir Roderick Spode by uh, appearing in blackface with a group of blackface uh, minstrels playing the ukulele while he sings, Lady of Spain, I adore It's very funny, but of course it's a hate crime, so you'll never see it now. Anyway, there was a lady in Spain who... Uh, got the COVID. She's triple jabbed, but she managed to get the COVID twice within 20 days. So it's not just that you get the COVID, (laughs) but at least if you're a Spanish lady, lady of Spain, if you're a Spanish lady, you get it more often. That's the fastest anyone's reacquired it. And what's interesting about that is, you know, when you get it, you're supposed to then have natural immunity for at least 20 minutes. But not if, uh, in her case, you got triple jabbed as soon as you've finished your last bout of COVID, you get it again. Because we're weakening immune systems here, making it more difficult to then acquire natural immunity. You know, I'm just... I'd just like to be able to talk about it without getting investigated up the wazoo by Ofcom, um, because that makes things very difficult. I sh- I'm, uh, actually, forget I told you that, because apparently you're not meant to mention when you're being investigated by Ofcom. <laughs> uh, thank you for that, Chris. Um, thank you for that. It's not actually funny. It's not actually funny. And if you subscribe to your globalist Klaus Schwab conspiracy theories, then mandatory injections that weaken your immune system is like too obvious. You couldn't get away with it in a conspiracy thriller because it's too obvious. That's what's so pathetic about it. I do think think it's actually tragic. I, uh, to be giving administering these jabs to people who don't need them and who will derive no protection from them. And that's like an awful lot of young people. I tried to point out people find it very hard to understand. Most generally speaking, we live in enumerate societies. 
But what the UK numbers, and I've looked at all the other numbers that I can put my hands on, New York City, New Zealand's a little different. In New Zealand, the people who are getting testing positive more often and all the rest of it are the double jabbed. But uh, all the other numbers I've seen, the triple, the triple jabbed are running away with this thing. Um, and what people don't seem to understand is it's getting worse week on week. That's why the UK Health Security Agency, I think, has stopped reporting. I can't get an answer out of them, but I think that's why. That's why they've re stopped reporting cases and hospitalization and death by vaccine status. Because it started off that it was just the uh, triple jabbed 70s and 80s and up who were dying in larger numbers. A couple of weeks go by, then it's the 60-somethings who are dying in larger numbers. Another couple of weeks, it's the 40-somethings and the 50-somethings, until eventually, like as in their last week, it's everybody over 18, all groups, 18 to 29, then 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80-plus. So something is going badly wrong with these things, and it looks like we may have inflicted real long-term damage on not everybody. You might be okay. I might be okay. I don't think so, actually. I don't think I am okay. I'm randomly singing Mireille Mathieu French pop hits from 1972 and rhapsodizing about Jenny Agatha. So I may be in the late stages of the COVID, and uh, I've only got 20 minutes to go. But you might be okay, uh, your friends might be okay, but there are a lot of people who are not okay, and something's wrong there. Andrew Jones says, there is no such thing as a functioning democracy anywhere on the planet at this point. It's all been hijacked by career nest featherers and corporate interests, right? Uh, righty, the question, should we not just scrap all current democratic forms and go to a system of nominating political leaders by lot rather than ballot, and of course, make lobbying punishable by keelhauling. Well, if you did just uh, nominate political leaders by lot, you would have a more normal group of political leaders uh, rather than, you know, Kamala Harris and Justin Trudeau and Jacinda Ardern and Emmanuel Macron and whatever. Uh, I think that gets back to there's a particular gap. The leadership of countries does not reflect anything about the, their countries. Last time around, we had a question we didn't get to, which was a great pity because I saw it afterwards and enjoyed it. Someone brought up Enoch Powell uh, at, at one of these little Tory ginger groups in Parliament that used to meet every Monday evening or whatever. And Mrs. Thatcher, even when she was prime minister, used to attend it just because she enjoyed the exercise, the the vigorous debate. And uh, and so she was talking about, you know, going to war for our values. And, and Enoch Powell scoffed at that and said, well, you know, they exist in a transcendent realm. We don't go to war for that. We go to war because this is our country. You know, he said, I would fight for England even if it had a communist government. And I think when we sort of start going on about constitutions and democracy and values, we don't get that. For most of human history, this is your land. And if you're invaded by people who are not from your land, you fight, you resist. 
Uh, and you can say what you like about Ukraine, but on my experience in that country, that's what all the Ukrainians... And nobody ever mentioned Zelensky to me. I, if, if I wanted to know what they thought of Zelensky, I had to bring his name up. Nobody said a thing about him, good or bad. They took it as read as that their leaders were corrupt uh, and on the take and all kinds of stuff going on. But they love their Ukrainians who love Ukraine. And that's enough. And that used to be enough for everybody. Norwegians who love Norway, Finns who love Finland, Scotsmen who love Scotland. And then we suddenly complicate, oh, we're fighting for value. Oh, really? How does fighting for values work out in Iraq or Afghanistan when you're basically uh, trying to impose values that the countries you're in don't share? So I think there's a lot of truth in what Enoch Powell said there to Mrs. Thatcher. I don't often think that Mrs. Thatcher is wrong, but I think he was there. And I think that's why all this idea being, you know, a functioning democracy, that's nothing to do uh, in the end with values are not where people live. And uh, democracy is not functioning. And John O'Sullivan put it very well when he said he was talking about the Hungarian election and he contrasted it with what happened in the United States after Trump's election and what happened uh, in the United Kingdom after the Brexit vote, where uh, increasingly uh, the establishment is is uh, less and less shy about indicating that democracy makes no difference and it shouldn't be allowed to make any difference. People initially started saying this uh, uh, first about the climate change rubbish. Oh, oh, the future of the planet is too is, is more important than democracy. So if the people keep electing leaders who uh, aren't sufficiently panicked about the future of the planet, then uh, democracy has to be overruled. And then we've seen it again with the COVID, where basically whoever you elected, you got the same bloody curve, except in Sweden, you got the same and a couple of American states, you know, Florida and a couple of others. Whoever you elected, you got the same COVID policy, almost as if it's agreed at the Spectre board meeting in the hollowed out volcano. And I think at a certain point, the interesting thing when uh, David Starkey was on the Mark Stein show and he was talking about China and Russia behaving as conventional empires, that in the end, we will do great damage to democracy if, if, uh, if it makes no difference who the people select as their representatives. Then, then what's the point? You might as well return to absolute monarchy uh, in one form or another. Uh, Ali M says, hi, Mark. Can American bureaucracies be redeemed and rehabilitated if they are partisan entities, as you suggested, beholden to one party, the Democrats, then they are useless and corrupt? Could a crusading president and a like-minded legislature clean house by either eliminating agencies altogether or instituting reforms that would depoliticize them so they can become more efficient institutions which serve all Americans without favor or malice. 
I think once the state gets to a certain size, then the people who, uh, well, I'll I'll use the I'll use a couple of the lines I've been using for most of this century. In After America, I used to say, "You don't need a president for life if you've got a bureaucracy for life." That's the situation America's in. That's the situation a lot of European countries are in. That's the situation Canada's in where I pointed out uh, from my own experience that once the state swells to a certain size, most of the people who want to take the jobs within the state, and let's face it, they're the only uh, real secure jobs, as we've learned from the last two years. Nobody who works for the state lost a penny. In fact, they're having great trouble trying to talk so-called public servants into coming back to work. But they've all been at home doing a couple of Zoom calls every now and then and on full pay. Whereas uh, if you own a diner, if you own a gym, if you own a shoe store, you've had the crappiest two years since you started work. You ain't got no retirement. You're screwed. Whereas the state bureaucrats just cruise on. Most of the people, once the state swells to a certain size... The people doing those jobs will be left of centre to one degree or another. They'll be statists working for the state. That's just the nature of the job. Um, Jason Kenney told me this back when I was in trouble with the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which was headed by a supposed conservative appointed by a conservative minister of justice. And Jason said, you know, the, the trouble is you win the election as Stephen Harper's Tories did, and you suddenly have all these jobs to fill, and you don't know anybody. You know, you know, you know enough people to fill a cabinet, but you don't know people to become chair of the Canadian Human Rights Commission. There aren't enough real conservatives who want to go anywhere near jobs like that. So you wind up with those jobs being held by pseudo-conservatives, people pretending to be conservatives, people pretending to be centrists. Now, as I said, Harper at least knew enough people to fill a cabinet, to fill his ministry. Uh, Trump couldn't even do that. Trump, Trump was such an outsider uh, that he arrives in Washington and suddenly the, the Republican establishment are pushing all these guys on him to, to fill all the jobs in the biggest, most bloated government on earth. So he's surrounded by enemies on all sides. Now, we know that, and he should have known it then. So if any Republican wins again, and that itself is a doubtful proposition, you've got to go in on day one, not just lethargically fill a position or two in the interminable three months between election day and you taking over when you're, you know, having dinner with Mitt Romney to see if he's interested in being secretary of state and everyone else in Washington is setting up the phony baloney Russia investigation to destroy the first three years of your presidency. You have to know going in that they're all your enemies and you've really got to have a huge clean out and uh, if possible, replace all these federal bureaucrats. You can do some at the top. You know, you're not going to be able to fill everybody. But perhaps if you look at 
the least dysfunctional states, you might be able to pick some state bureaucrats to fill them. Or you have to do what New Zealand did uh, under Sir Roger Douglas, who was the finance minister of New Zealand, where you privatize a whole bunch of stuff. And here's the, here's the thing about this. Here's the thing about privatization um, is is that at a certain sense, if you privatize, say, the park service, which, you know, everything's politicized in America. It's so horrible. This, these alphabet soup agencies, they're all politicized. Um, but if you remove them from politics entirely, so they're just people who have to look after parks, there's an element of politics in everything because everybody's politicized. But you can't go and make your uh, you can't you can't go and advance yourself through the federal bureaucracy if it's a privatized park service. So then it'll just be it won't be about being ideological because it'll just be about looking after parks. You know, you can do it like that in certain size countries, whether you can do it. And, and the other thing that he could do, actually, is is just devolve uh, a lot of this stuff to the states. And the states, if they wanted to help, would devolve a lot of it to county level or town level. But if you if you have these are this is the natural consequence of the massive expansion, the alphabet soup, uh, most of it invented by FDR. But it makes when when government is that size, then government will be left wing and you'll just have, you know, every so often you'll just have a supposed right of center guy presiding over on top of it. And American government is huge, huge. Uh, Christopher Gelber says, Mark, I believe we have different takes on the Ukraine war. But I see what looks increasingly like a shakedown operation by Zelensky or those pulling his strings of the West with billions upon billions being demanded and agreed to by a compliant West seemingly without any restraint. I predict that none of it will ever be traceable and one year, one day, years down the line, some report will be issued saying questions remain about where the money went, but what are you going to do? At the same time, Biden and Johnson are warning Zelensky not to agree any terms with Russia and again and again, leading US and European politicians and state actors, including Victoria Newland, are walking out of international meetings when the Russian spokesperson speaks. Janet Yellen did it yesterday at a G20 meeting. In short, the West is doing nothing to try and find a political settlement. This is more than enough to ensure long-term inflation throughout the West. The damage our leaders are doing to us and our children is incalculable. And for what? Thoughts. Well, I said what I said about Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians are fighting for Ukraine. They're fighting very well. Uh, you can go to Kiev now. I might go. I might go to Kiev. Um, it's uh, you, which you couldn't do a few weeks ago. So they're fighting in the Donbass, which is basically uh, was semi-Russian even before Russia invaded. So if you just left Ukraine and Russia alone, and I include the demands by Zelensky, oh, you know, just give us weapons. That's all we want. The fact of the matter is, the West is arming both sides. Uh, we had Bruno Massace on the show who accurately pointed out that uh, in combination, Europe had given a billion euros 
to uh, to Ukraine. And uh, since the war started, Europe's given a billion euros to Ukraine and about 40 billion to Russia by continuing to buy Russian uh, oil and gas. Uh, and indeed, for, for all the stupidity, and, the, and again, this is the perfect... This is the perfect sort of social media. Oh, oh, yeah, we're not going to let Russian and Belarusian players play at Wimbledon. Uh, they don't represent their countries. Why can't they play at Wimbledon? Oh, we're because we want to send a strong message. They haven't denounced uh, Putin enough. Well, if they denounce Putin, their families will get arrested. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. They can't play at Wimbledon anyway. Oh, I'm glad to see you're so pure and virtuous about this. But why are you still giving billions and billions of euros and billions and billions of dollars to Moscow every bloody day of the week? So this whole thing, what you need to do to look at this war is take the West out of it. America and uh, it's uh, the, the remnants of the Western alliance wreck everything they touch. So the best, the best chance the Ukrainians have of surviving this thing is, uh, for, is for America not to intervene on their side. You know, you could you could ask an Afghan schoolgirl how she feels about having the support of the Americans. So I, I don't I, I think there's Ukraine and there's Russia. And I look at what Ukraine's done. And uh, I think to myself, I really don't want thoroughly modern Millie and the Pentagon wankers going anywhere near that thing. Now, is Zelensky corrupt? Yes, he's got a, you know, whatever the thing is. A twenty-eight million dollar home in Miami. He made. I know a little about what uh, television rates are. Not in Ukraine, but in Hungary. I did a co-production with MTV Magyar Television in Hungary, and just the other week, many years ago, and just the other week, I was uh, talking to somebody from Danko Radio, which I happen to like very much in Hungary. I know a little about what money you can make in Hungarian broadcasting, and you make even less if you cross the border into Ukraine. So uh, there is no explanation for Zelensky's wealth except that he's corrupt. But he's played this thing uh, brilliantly, and uh, the, the fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, that's not why U Ukrainians are fighting for Ukraine. They're not fighting for Zelensky. It's a moronic way of looking uh, at it. But the best thing the West can do, the West is uh, dishonestly, uh, you know, we're broke. We're broke. And right now we're funding both sides of the war. So you could look on Ukraine in fiscal terms as a civil war uh, where we're funding both sides. So it's just like, you know, if there's a civil war reenaction thing in Virginia or wherever, and, uh, and, and the municipality pays for both sides. That's basically what Ukraine, the Ukraine war is. Um, but, you know, there are dark secrets in Ukraine. There are dark secrets. And I think the reason in American terms Ukraine has come along, because I, uh, I, don't, I don't watch Fox uh, a lot these days, but I occasionally listen to it while I drive around in the car. And it's Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. They're interviewing all these generals 
about they banned the one dissident general. We used to have him on Tucker when I guest hosted once in a while. Um, but uh, he's been banned, and the ones you do hear are just sort of all rah-rah for the whole thing. It's a Lindsey Graham view of the war. And my view is, and America's not in the war, and America's not going to be in the war. And it's just a money thing. It's a money thing and a media war. And the purpose of the, the, purpose of the money war is, and the sanctions is to make us so uh, maintain our impoverishment. So it's like a COVID super variant, right? So it maintains the sort of state of abnormality uh, necessary for the, the the big COVID state. So that's why we're we're introducing we've introduced sanctions that actually only hurt us. You know, as Biden says, it's Putin's gas tax. Right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. But didn't you impose the sanctions on him, not the other way around? Uh, so that's to maintain, that's for uh, like, uh, you know, uh, Delta variant round two, that is. Then we have the media war. <laughs> the reason why, oh, Lindsey Graham's on TV with Sean Hannity every night. Whoa, whoa. Uh, the uh, Democrats must be seriously worried about getting totally totaled in November. So what can they do about that? I know. Let's get Lindsey Graham out there arguing for boots on the ground every night with Sean Hannity, and that'll take care of it. Democrat landslide, here we come. Tom Lewis says, I believe we're uh, both fans of Hungary's conservative leader, Viktor Orban. What's your view on his position towards supporting Ukraine? I read that there may be some division between the V4 Visegrad group, especially between Poland and Hungary. Well, he doesn't like Zelensky when he won election. By the way, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a fan of, uh, of Viktor Orban particularly. I mean, I would have voted for Viktor Orban uh, up against the other guys. What I like about Viktor Orban and Hungary is it has a wider range of public discourse. And I would, uh, we haven't quite cracked the code. I would like Viktor Orban types to move west from middle Europa uh, so that uh, Marine Le Pen would have the same wind at her back that Victor Orban has at his. Because I, uh, I think cultural conservatism is my priority. You know, we talk about all the factions. Uh, I think we had a comment about it at the website uh, earlier today about the big tent, big tent conservatism. You've got your national security conservatives and your chamber of commerce conservatives and all that. You know, none of that matters to me because already, what's the point of national security conservatism? We lose all the wars. So who cares? What's, what's the point of chamber of conservative, chamber of commerce conservatism? Um, China makes everything and we've got $30 trillion officially in federal debt. So what's the point of that? What matters more than any of that is cultural conservatism. Uh, is your country still your country? That's why uh, I like uh, Victor Orban. Now, there's divisions in the Visegrad group about Ukraine. He doesn't like Zelensky. On the other hand, he, he's got staggering numbers of Ukrainian refugees he's let into Hungary. I have never seen 
Once you notice the first one, it's all you see. I've never seen more Ukrainian license plates than I, uh, I saw in Budapest a couple of weeks ago. They're everywhere. They're all over the train stations and everything. You, when I came back into the country, I actually rode on a bus <laughs> with, the, uh, with all the uh, Ukrainian refugees because they wouldn't like, let me walk into the next town. They said I had to get on the refugee bus and be taken to the refugee center for processing. I didn't want to be processed. So I rode on the bus with all the refugees uh, and they're all women and children. They're not at all like, you know, those phony baloney refugees who, who went into Germany in 2016 and Sweden and who arrive at England's uh, southern shore every day and cross the Rio Grande every day. It's just women and children. Um, so he, again, it's his thing is he's he doesn't like Zelensky and he's right to these people in the that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about in the end. Um, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for your questions. We're going to get to more of them in uh, just a minute. Uh, but first, as always, a sense of perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Footballers in spectacles, radio around the empire, and Bolsheviks without bullets. It's April 1922. A hundred years from today. Your world news update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The French Prime Minister, Raymond Poincaré, has warned that if the Germans default in their reparations payments, France will, if necessary, act alone to enforce the Treaty of Versailles. Following the Russo-German Treaty of Rapallo and the Genoa Conference's threat to nullify any aspects that conflict with the Versailles Treaty, the Bolshevik regime has declared that, quote, in no case can it permit treaties concluded by Russia to depend for their legality on the action of powers not signatory. In August 1918, a Ukrainian Jewess called Fanny Kaplan fired three bullets into Vladimir Lenin. She was quickly dispatched by the Cheka, and Mr. Lenin retreated to the Kremlin. Two bullets had passed through his neck and his coat, but the third lodged in his shoulder and stayed there because the Bolshevik leader refused to go to hospital, not trusting in their security. Now, four years later, the bullet has been removed and Lenin's health is said to be satisfactory. He has less pain in his shoulder but more in Yakutsk, about 300 miles south of the Arctic Circle. It is the coldest city on earth with a record low of minus 83.9 degrees Fahrenheit recorded in 1891. Nevertheless, people are willing to fight over it. The white Russians under Mikhail Korobynikov took it from the communists just last month and proclaimed the provisional Yakut Regional People's Government. The Moscow regime has now pushed back and as part of its plans to retake the city has inaugurated the Yakut Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic.
Chinatowns are so agreeable in the Fengtian Zhili War for control of Peking. Zhang Zhuolin, commander of the Fengtian forces, has launched a direct attack on the Zhili army of Wu Peifu and succeeded in pushing them back from the city. The British Labour Party called a 24-hour general strike in Ireland to express its opposition to the prospect of civil war on the island. It doesn't seem to have had its desired effect in the market town of Dunmanway in County Cork. Across three days, 13 Protestant men have been killed or have disappeared, starting with the magistrate Thomas Hornibrook, his son Samuel and his nephew Herbert Woods. The Royal Irish Constabulary has been the unitary national police force in Ireland for a century, uh, but with the island dividing into separate jurisdictions, the police will be dividing too. In Northern Ireland, it will be known from June the 1st as the Royal Ulster Constabulary. It is not yet known what name will be applied in the South. Elsewhere in His Majesty's Dominions, an Australian saloon keeper called Colin Campbell Ross was convicted of the rape and murder of 12-year-old Nell Alma Tersht. Protesting his innocence to the end, Mr Ross has been hanged at the Melbourne jail, but using an experimental four-stranded rope rather than the usual three-stranded hemp, uh, Mr Ross dropped through the gallows but did not die and instead dangled there, strangling to death very slowly. You will soon be able to love her by radio across the British Empire, the first link in the Imperial Wireless chain, an empire-wide chain of radio transmission stations, is now operational, connecting Lee Field in England to Cairo in Egypt. Whether Egypt is flattered to be part of a British Empire radio chain is another matter. The newly inaugurated Kingdom of Egypt now has a new national flag consisting of a green background with a white crescent and three stars. In the United States, to mark the centenary of President Grant's birth, the Ulysses S. Grant Memorial has been dedicated in Washington. The centerpiece is a statue of the great Civil War general on horseback. It is the largest equestrian statue in the United States. Daddy. Up 
Have you seen the new comedy picture with Thomas Mann, The Bachelor Daddy? Don't worry, it's not as it sounds. It's about a chap who adopts a quintet of kids, the children of his dead mining partner, and then finds that his snooty society fiancé wants nothing to do with them. In sports news, Huddersfield Town has defeated Preston North End 1-0 to win the Football Association Challenge Cup at Stamford Bridge. The Preston goalkeeper, James Mitchell, is the first man ever to wear spectacles in a cup final. In rugby, the Rochdale Hornets have beaten Hull 10-9 to take the Challenge Cup. The Hornets' ferocious forwards are known as the Terrible Six. In baseball, a perfect game is one in which no opposing player reaches first base in a game lasting at least nine innings. The last time that happened was over 13 years ago. Now we have another. Charlie Robertson pitched that perfect game for his Chicago White Sox at Navin Field in Detroit for a 2 to nothing win over the Detroit Tigers. And then he'd roll, roll, roll. The river is all they can do after flooding left 12,000 people homeless in the states of Mississippi and Louisiana. Water and fire. In Spain, flames swept through the crowded customs house for passengers arriving by ship at Malaga. 60 people are dead and over 100 injured. More fire from an underground explosion at the Aurelia mine in Romania. 82 coal miners are dead. 32 of them burned beyond recognition. A terrible tragedy for the former Colorado Senator Simon Guggenheim. His son, also called John Simon Guggenheim, is dead of mastoiditis, an infection of the air cells behind the ears. The boy was 17. The Guggenheim family has been ill-starred in recent years. Mr. Guggenheim's brother died on the Titanic. He and his wife Olga are now mulling an appropriate memorial for their young son. 
Pat Kelly was one of the first female mountain climbers. At Easter, she was climbing the Welsh mountain Trifan. At the end of the day, she was found severely injured at the bottom of some easy-to-climb rocks, and she was taken to hospital. Nine days later, she is dead from fractures to the base of her skull. Pat Kelly was 49. Nick Carter stories. He has been one of the most popular fictional detectives for almost 40 years. Several authors have written his adventures, but none more than Frederick Van Rensselaer Day, who penned 1,076 of them. He has left behind a mystery all his own. He mailed a suicide note to his publisher at Street and Smith who upon receipt hurried round to Mr. Day's room at the Hotel Brostel in Manhattan and found him there dead by self-inflicted gunshot. He was 61. And that's the way of the world, April 1922. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. And if you've missed an instalment of the 100 Years Ago show in recent weeks, uh, you can uh, make up for it with our monthly anthology edition this Sunday at Stein Online, so don't miss that. Let's get back to your questions from around the world on our Clubland Q&A. Roger, I want to get to this one before I forget it. Uh, Roger Corp, uh, or Kaup, or Corpe, I, however you say it, Roger, uh, I apologize because I've most lang- likely mangled it. But Roger says, Mark, in the course of your many interviews with golden age musicians and performers, did you ever hear why Frank Sinatra never sang the midnight intro verse to Street of Dreams? I always thought it would have fitted very well with his quarter to three concert persona. Uh, love your writing and thinking. The only thing to look forward to is the past, as the likely lads say. I can I can certainly tell you uh, why he didn't sing it. Not because I heard it from Frank himself, but because I heard it from the guy who did the arrangement for the version he used in uh, the last 20 years of his life, more or less. That was Billy. He had two arrangements. Oh, I think he had a third, actually. Uh, very early on, but the, he he first really did it on stage with the Basie Band in Vegas, uh, and then in the seventies he asked Billy May uh, to do an arrangement, uh, a really hard, terrific hard swinging arrangement, and Billy wrote a little uh, counter melody for it, and Billy May, who's a fantastic, just a fantastic arranger, uh, Billy said to me. Uh, so I do the arrangement and I write a little counter melody that swings against it so he can reprise it for the instrumental and everything. And then I look at the song and I go, uh, it's only, there's only 16 bars of it. Uh, so <laughs> he says to Frank, hey, Frank, this is going to be a very short record. And so Frank says, OK, uh, I'll do the verse. What's the verse? And as you say, you call it the midnight intro verse because the first words are midnight you heavy laden it's midnight come on and trade in your old dreams for new billy may didn't know the verse nor did frank and so uh, billy may 
goes away, grabs the sheet music, comes back, and then Billy <laughs> sings the verse to Sinatra. And Sinatra goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what is this thing about? It's like you've got to get there at midnight and you'll be met there by others like you. Uh, come and trade your old dreams for new and your new dreams for old. I know where the dream... This is a song about drug addiction, which is... You know, quite right. That's the obvious interpretation. You, you. It's the street of dreams. You're. At, it's the equivalent of Dunkin' Donuts parking lots in Vermont. It's where you go to get your drugs. And Frank thought it diminished the song, and it diminished the concept of the song, and it made it too obviously a sort of druggy song. Now you can do it, Lee Wiley. Uh, does the verse. I love Lee Wiley because I, I love her her voice and she can sing it in a female's voice and make it sound like a song of seduction. So it's not necessarily about drug addiction, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it could be about prostitution or it could just be like going to a bar and meeting a great chick. And she can do it and get away with doing it like that. But even then it's tricky. I, I always love that song. And I asked my friend Dorothy Berryman, uh, at the star of the Oscar-winning uh, uh, Invasion Barbar film, uh, Barbarian Invasions, great look at Canadian healthcare. I asked Dorothy uh, to sing the song, just sort of as a favour to me because I liked it, and Dorothy did it with the verse, for reasons you say, you know, basically for the same reasons you're saying, and it sort of died... <laughs> And so I apologized to her at dinner afterwards and said, my God, what was I thinking? And so uh, the next time I saw her, she just did it in that big swing in Sinatra arrangement and forgot all. So I, I think Sinatra's judgment, and we've talked about this on the Song of the Week shows, you know, Sinatra didn't like to sing superfluous verses or verses that conflicted with what he liked about the chorus. And uh, I heard all that from the man who did the arrangement, the wonderful Billy May. Thank you for that question, Roger. I actually thank you for thank you for the mentions of Mireille Mathieu and whatever the Jenny Agatha film, what Logan's Run and uh, Frank Sinatra, Street of Dreams. I like all that. Thank you very, thank you very much. Michelle Dulac says, uh, dear Mark, don't know whether this is on your bores me stiff list since it's only unfolded over the last few days. But what make you of the Taylor Lorenz Libs of TikTok dispute? In case you don't know, uh, Libs of TikTok, I was talking about this with Snurdly on the radio on Tuesday at WABC. Libs of TikTok is a very funny Twitter account that basically just takes the worst aspects of the... Um, uh, the the uh, liberal TikTokers and just puts them out there on Twitter. Just, you know, awful teachers, teachers, so-called teachers who shouldn't be actually allowed within 200 miles of your kids. And basically, uh, the Washington Post decided to dox her, decided to. It's an anonymous Twitter account. Uh, like a lot of uh, Twitter accounts on there, I'm always getting attacked by anonymous people. But and I always recommend you don't be anonymous, for reasons that. 
Kathy Shadel and Ayan Hersey Ali explained. Because, uh, as Ayan puts it, you have to share the burden. And if some people, most people are anonymous and there's only a few dozen people out there doing this under their real names, and the burden falls on far few, a bit far fewer people, not all of whom can stand it. But there's another, and I get a lot of pushback on that. That's Ion feels that seriously, and Kathy Shadel felt it seriously. But there's a lot of people who say, no, 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 no. Uh, it's like uh, being uh, anonymous gives you a much greater freedom to say things, and you know, so being Eagle Patriot Warrior seventy three, and it 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 isn't true because Eagle Patriot Warrior seventy three uh, nobody cares about. If you're anonymous and you have an impact, then they'll find out who you are and destroy you, as they've done to this lady. As Michelle says, to me, the action itself seems vile. See also the Washington Post's attempt to scrub its own site of personal info and pretend that it was never there. But in light of Taylor Lorenz's tearful breakdown over bad, nasty people sending me emails and talking to my family... It seems, well, double plus vile. Yes, it's not pretty to watch that. You know, this kind of thing where you talk honestly, I get, I get so tired of, uh, and this is why I think I was, you know, perhaps a bit cranky last week. I think I get so tired of being accused of a lack of integrity. I just say what I think about things, and sometimes it's not butch enough for you. You know, there's a lot of people on Ukraine. There's not many people who uh, are with me on Ukraine who read this site because a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, are not sympathetic to the Ukrainians and prefer Putin's side. It's not because I'm taking money, you know, from somebody or because I don't have the guts to say it. I got all the guts in the world to say what I believe. But, uh, you know, I, I had all I, I don't want to go into backstage dramas at GB News, but you can imagine a bit uh, that there's been a bit of back and forth about certain things. And I'm not particularly when you're being investigated by Ofcom. I'm not some there's no money in the world. You can pay me to say something I don't believe. I say what I believe, and sometimes it's not butch enough for some of you, but it happens to be where I am on that particular topic. But you shouldn't, these days, you shouldn't get into it unless you understand that there will be a moment, like there came for Taylor Lorenz, when you think you've gone in uh, anonymously and you're having a great impact, uh, like one of my colleagues um, at, uh, at GB News, who does the uh, big free speech show on Sunday night. He started, he really made a name for himself with a sort of parody woke Twitter account. But the minute you have an, a Twitter account that's making an impact, they're going to find out who you are. And the fact of the matter is it's Twitter. So there's woke interns in there who know who you are, and we'll be able to leak that information. So really, if you're interested in being Eagle Patriot Warrior 87 and you had any impact, one of those woke interns, uh, if you had the impact that Libs of TikTok did, one of those woke interns is going to leak that information to someone unfriendly. And then you're going to be destroyed. 
unless you're uh, the kind of person who's able to withstand this. And, and it, before you start in on it, as with a Twitter account, as with a Facebook account, as in anything, in any public forum, you should think about this. You should think about this. Think about, you know, your liberal cousin. Uh, if she finds out, if they call her up and say, oh, you know this uh, libs of TikTok, you know Eagle Patriot Warrior, who's such a big deal on the internet, did you know that's your cousin Fred? Uh it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, this. And it's particularly so now because you can't just be, you can't even be a 95% ally of the left. In the end, if you just, you know, a lady that we have often uh, or occasionally on, on the Mark Stein show, Naomi Wolf, she agrees with the left on 95% of, of everything. But she broke with them on COVID, and so she she's dead to them. You've got to be in 100% lockstep agreement. And if you're effective and you're, and you're anonymous, then they'll think they see that as a vulnerability. Aha! Aha! It's called libs of TikTok because this person has reasons why they don't put their name to it. You know, they'll lose their job or... Uh, their family will hate them or whatever. I mean, I've seen this even with people who do put their uh, names to things like Pamela Geller, where they try to turn her daughters or whatever it is against her. I mean, just horrible, horrible things that go on. Um, it's not for everybody. It's a very bitter, unpleasant world. But everybody who goes into it anonymously on social media, there is no anonymity. You know, Kate McMillan, for example, who's uh, one of the last surviving Canadian bloggers. I love Kate McMillan. Uh, she's a fearless and shrewd person, and her small dead animal site is uh, excellent. Uh, she always says, you know, she thinks we're idiots on a lot of things. Like, uh, she has great lines in this stuff. Like, some guy's complaining. Uh, <laughs> suddenly... Uh, he, he moved. He was doing YouTube videos or whatever, and moved into the misinformation category because he said something about COVID or whatever it was. And so he lost six months of his videos have just been vaporized from wherever they were being hosted. And uh, as Kate McMillan said, a cloud is just like a name for somebody else's hard drive. You know. These are very basic lessons. These are very basic lessons. Libs of TikTok is a brilliant, was a brilliant idea and a brilliant website. But if you try to do these things uh, anonymously, they're going to get you sooner or later. Midwestern Tim says, as an American who resides in the Midwest, I haven't much of a clue how the monarchy in the UK works. Mark, could you shed some light on whether or not Queen Elizabeth bears any responsibility for the rampant Muslim grooming gangs that are wreaking havoc across her land? It seems to me that should she take an interest in her homegrown subjects being used and abused by immigrants, she might be able to have a positive effect. Have you paid any attention to Tommy Robinson's documentary, The Rape of Britain?, 
about the grooming gangs. If you really want to get cancelled from GB News, you could interview him about it live on air. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't seen that documentary. He does do. He does do splendid things. But on this particular topic, you know, I'm happy. I I met. I met a lot of these girls. I met them six or seven years ago, and at the time, I, <laughs> you know, I, I appreciated that Sammy. There's lots of girls, and some of them are damaged, and some of them are survivors. But one of the things I liked about Sammy Woodhouse, for example, is that it's clear, she's she's indomitable, and uh, uh, I was I'm happy to have her as a, a correspondent on these matters. The, the it's the in a constitutional monarchy, the queen is the head of the executive branch. In Canada and even in Solomon, the uh, the Solomon Islands, notwithstanding its Chinese agreement, and she doesn't have any. She does, and so she signs off on everything. But she doesn't sign off. Uh, she doesn't propose or not propose uh, certain things. Now you have the right to warn, uh, for example. Um, George V used to exercise that quite a lot um, uh, uh, with uh, Tim Healy, I think, uh, becoming first governor general of the Irish Free State. That was basically the king's idea. Uh, Ernie Bevan becoming foreign secretary after the war. That was King George VI's suggestion, I believe. But uh, the, the, uh, all, all these decisions are made by... Uh, in the Queen's name, but not by the Queen. Now, when you talk about these grooming gangs, there is a little bit that I think you can say is her responsibility. Aliens in British uh, law are non-Commonwealth citizens. The Commonwealth in its modern incarnation is very much the Queen's thing, and uh, as as done in her role as head of the Commonwealth, which is the only thing she does where she doesn't take advice from her ministers, whether they be her UK ministers, her Canadian ministers, her New Zealand ministers, her Belize ministers, or whatever. It's the only thing that is sort of constitutionally untethered. And one consequence of that such as things like aliens are non-Commonwealth citizens, so that uh, a, a a Frenchman is an alien, uh, but a Pakistani is not an alien. Uh, that I think a lot of that has to do with the Queen's personal enthusiasm for the post-imperial Commonwealth family. So in a certain sense, I think the Pakistanization of Telford or Bradford, it, at a certain sense, can be linked to her view of the world. And I think, you know, I think at a certain point she might have looked uh, out the window from Windsor Castle over to Slough and said... Uh, where's this going to be 20 or 30 years down the line? I think you. I think there is something to be said there. We are in emergency circumstances. You know, 
my little summer entertainment from a couple of summers ago, The Prisoner of Windsor, is, a, is about the difficulty uh, of getting a constitution, is partly about the difficulty of getting a constitutional monarch to act. It's a brilliant book. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. But it's brilliant in one sense in that it actually uh, sort of predicts uh, the way the Prince of Wales uh, went would be going over to the globalist side of things. So I'll, I'll only say that about it. Let's take one more uh, quickly. Oh, this is the one I was uh, I was talking about. I thought I'd seen it earlier this morning. Uh, but in fact, it's more recent than that. I think maybe you've... Have you reposted it? Yeah, you must have posted this somewhere else, I think. Eric Dale says, Hello, Mark. The Florida legislature is in the process of revoking Disney self-government exemptions that essentially saved it on a, a lot of taxes and made it a little state within a state. The usual perch pearl clutches on the right are clucking that this isn't who we are and that we're tearing into the economic libertarians that make up fusionist conservatism. It got me thinking that the so-called economic libertarians of the Chamber of Commerce right left the coalition long ago and have actively bankrolled the hard left. So why should social conservatives continue to back economic policies we have no real benefit from? The national security right got us into wars in Iraq and elsewhere with no plan to win and the free trade, no matter what caucus obliviously argued for years that communities hollowed out by the outsourcing of manufacturing needed to adapt to economic conditions brought on by their policies or they should die. Maybe it's time for the right to have a deep rethink and ditch the outmoded fusionism of the 1980s. What are your thoughts? Well, look, we're talking about Disney here. There's nothing for conservatives in Disney. Disney are awful, 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 awful people. They put every little thing I know about my areas, like copyright law, for example, which is the thing I take a great interest in and indeed have occasionally testified as an expert witness in, in cases. You know, so Disney, they're rich and powerful and so they can afford lobbyists and so they can get the, the copyright on Mickey Mouse as in Steamboat Willie is from, I think, 1928. So I think that's due to... They managed to get that extended to 95 years because they're powerful. It's absolutely disgusting. And don't wave your constitution at me because the constitution in the United States permits corporate copyright to last longer than individual creators' copyright, which is sick and disgusting. And so Disney, because they're powerful, don't weigh that constitution at me, got the uh, copyright on Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie extended to 95 years, right? If I come up with a mouse in 1928, uh, in most parts of the world, it used to be 50 years after I died, and I died, what is it now, about seven years ago? Uh, and then it got extended to 70 years. But if you're Disney, you can lean on it and uh, get Mickey Mouse extended 95 years, and they'll be working those congressmen and senators to get it extended again. They're sick, evil people at Disney who uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, now want to extend Mickey Mouse uh, so he can be grooming your children uh, until well uh, toward the end of the century. So I don't see why you should do a special deal with them for Disney World, which is rubbish. 
Uh, and I think, as I said, I think the most important thing is cultural conservatism. So why you are making power more powerful, uh, you know, th this is where I am with your Victor Orbans and your Marine Le Pens. That's the most important. If you don't have cultural conservatism, you don't have anything else. Now, we don't have anything. As I said, natural security conservatism, who cares? We lose all the wars. Fiscal conservatism, who cares? We're the brokey broke brokest nation that's ever existed. So, 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 what is left? What matters? Cultural conservatism uh, and Disney are on the other side of that battle. So, no, I think I, all these things, but, the, but the, the ability of the powerful to pervert equality before the law so that copyright law applies differently to the Walt Disney Company than it does to, say, somebody who uh, writes a uh, hit song or a best-selling novel. Disgusting. Absolutely, mate. If I think about it, I'd be vomiting all over the microphone. So I don't want to. I don't want to think about it. Okay, let's have <laughs> a bit of music to go. When you wish upon a star, someday my prince will come. No, we don't want any of those Disney. Uh, we don't want any of those Disney songs. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll play a little. What, what was the one uh, that I was thinking of? The Mireille Mathieu on that. On that rendezvous un jour. Avec sa chance. That is a lovely song. Um, Robert Morse died on Wednesday, aged 90, a long life, uh, but he's forever associated with his blockbuster role as J. Pierpont Finch in the uh, Broadway show and Hollywood film of how to succeed in business without really uh, trying. And he became so indestructibly associated with that whole vibe of uh, Madison Avenue in the 1960s that decades later they put him in the TV show Mad Men. Uh, this was his big song in How to Succeed. The composer and lyricist Frank Lesser always complained that producers loved him for his comedy numbers and character songs and never let him write love ballads. So he wrote this song for the girl to sing to the boy and then Abe Burroughs, the director, said, no, 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 I've got a better idea. And Frank Lesser said, there goes my love song. So we are in the executive washroom. The other executives are paranoid uh, that Robert Morse's character has called some kind of meeting uh, and uh, in order to get them in some way. And then Robert Morse himself walks into the washroom and stands at the sink, looks in the shaving mirror and sings Frank Lesser's love song to himself. Um, attention to detail is everything. It's a terrific orchestra, but they give the instrumental so if you listen, they give the instrumental solo to the electric razor. Robert Morse, I believe in you. All set for the big meeting? Well, could be. It could be. Wish me luck. <laughs> Good luck. Go get him, baby. Good luck. All best. Lots of luck. Stop that man, I gotta stop that man cold, or he'll stop me. 
big deal. Big Rocket thinks he has the world in his pocket. Gotta stop, gotta stop, gotta stop that Now there you are, yes, there's that face, that face that somehow I trust. It may embarrass you to hear me say it, but say it I must, say it I must. You have the cool, clear eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth. Yet there's that upturned chin and the grin of impetuous youth. I believe in you. I believe in you. I hear the sound of good solid judgment whenever you talk yet there's the bold brave spring of the tiger that quickens your walk My faith in my fellow man All but falls apart I've but to feel your hand grasping mine And I take heart I take heart To see the cool, clear Eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth and Yet with the slam, bang, tang Reminiscent of gin and vermouth
hear the sound of good, solid judgment whenever you talk, yet there's that bold, brave spring of the tiger that quickens your walk. Robert Morse sings Frank Lesser unforgettably in the 1967 film of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Rest in peace, Robert. Frank Lesser was quite right that for the sake of a great moment on stage, Abe Burroughs killed his song as a love song. I Believe in You was recorded by Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee, Bobby Darin, Shirley Bassey, Jack Jones, Dion Warwick. But having been introduced as a love song to oneself, it never quite established itself as a love song to anybody else. We'll have more music, plus Rick McGuinness's movie pick, plus our continuing tale for our time by Anthony Trollope, plus the anthology edition of the 100 Years Ago show, all coming up this weekend at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free, and keep that slam-bang-tang reminiscent of gin and vermouth. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved. <laughs>